Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by Inco, the world's first blockchain-based health tech financial solutions platform. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And today, we're going to talk to Tracy Leparulo. She's the founder and CEO of Untraceable and organizer and founding member of the Futurist Conference that's coming up in Toronto on August 15th and 16th. And Tracy came on the show to talk to us about the evolution of blockchain from her perspective in Toronto, Canada. It was very interesting to see where blockchain all started who was like in the mix, who was just developing, who did they know, and where it came to today. Very interesting conversation with Tracy. Thank you for coming on the show. But before we get into that conversation, please check us out on YouTube. That's Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron, where we put out previews and roundups for all the podcasting interviews we do. So check it out so you can hear my opinions on the podcast, the people, the projects. Also go to Crypto101Podcast.com. Join our social medias, our Facebook, our Instagram, our Twitter. Also think about becoming a patron. The patrons are the backbone of our community. If we do not have sponsored ads, they're the ones that are keep paying the bills so that we can keep making the podcast. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Also feel free to send me an email anytime just to ask a question, say what's up or critique. That's up to you. Without further ado, here's Tracy and enjoy our conversation about the evolution of blockchain. Tracy Leparulo, CEO and founder of Untraceable and the Futurist Conference. Hello and welcome to Crypto 101. Hello, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's talk about who you are. And then you gave us an amazing idea for a topic, the evolution of blockchain. So we're going to start out hopefully back in 2011, 2012, and you're going to take us all the way up to now and then talk about the future of blockchain a little bit. And then we're going to talk a little bit about your Futurist Conference. What do you think? Awesome. That sounds like a great place. I'm excited to share some stories with you. Awesome. I'm excited to hear them. So first <laughs> things first, who are you? So my name's Tracy and uh, I've been interested in the crypto space since 2011 when I was in uh, university. I've had quite a few years in the space and really seen it evolve to where it is today. But a bit about me, I'm from Toronto in Canada. I have a background in marketing and entrepreneurship. That's kind of where I went to school. While I was there, I did lots of different projects, a lot of work in Kenya where I started a microfinance program to doing a lot of social impact projects and working with children with autism and creating really dynamic digital experiences online. And I have a family. I have a brother and a sister and some pets. <laughs> right on. What kind of pets? I got a dog and a cat. Oh, okay. So you're, you're not a dog or a cat person. You're mixing both of them in there. I say I'm a dog person. My cat's more for my sister. Oh, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a cat person, actually. Not a, oh. <laughs> yeah, not, not a big dog fan. They're kind of needy. I, they just like all over. They just need stuff all the time. And I'm not that, I don't know. I'm busy. <laughs> so you're in Toronto right now? I am in Toronto. Right on. How is it over there? It's a great place to be, especially uh, in June. The light much nicer around here this time. <laughs> right on, right on. Toronto's actually picking up to be a, quite a blockchain and crypto hub, isn't it? Yeah, without a doubt. I think it's been for quite a few years. It's getting a lot of more traction now, but it really is, you know, where Ethereum was born. 
and the heart of it. And from there, it's really grown to what it is today. So we got dozens and dozens of startups, thousands of enthusiasts and people that come out to our events, a lot of great investors here. So it really is becoming a, a crypto hub. What do you attribute that to? How did that come about? Is it just because Vitalik was from there and started Ethereum? Or what has really created that ecosystem or that environment to really foster the interest in blockchain in Toronto? So Ethereum was a big portion of it, but it actually started many years before that. It had a quite a big Bitcoin community here. So we used to have weekly Bitcoin meetups. And because they were weekly, I think we were able to grow the community really quickly because we saw everybody every single week. <laughs> and from that, there was actually a house that was in Toronto called Decentral. And so this was a place that everyone kind of hung out with all the time, all day, all throughout the night. And so that really fostered a lot of conversations and partnerships and innovation there. And of course, that's where uh, Ethereum and a lot of the Ethereum team started out at that house as well. What, what do you mean the house? It's literally, so we have a street called Spadina. Okay. And Spadina is a very, very big street that's just restaurants and, and really condos. But there's one house that sits on there in the corner of Spadina and King, and it was called Decentral. And it was three floors, and it was it was like an old house that we used to all just sit there and work at our computers and watch the price go up and down. And who paid for this house? Where did this house come from? The house came from Anthony Diorio, one of the co-founders of Ethereum and the funders of Ethereum. Okay. So he created something called Decentral. Okay. I helped him with all the marketing and you know the branding and, and operations of it. So what year was this? That would be started 2013, 2014. Okay, so I think we're already back at our time. Yeah. When do we start our evolution of blockchain? 2013? Yeah, I would say 2014 is probably an iconic year. So I remember even one of my first big days at the actual office itself was the one of the days Mount Gox got mm -hmm. hacked. We had all the media coverage came all into the house. You know, we kind of became the place that if people wanted to ask questions about what was going on in the news for Bitcoin, that's where the media would also come in playing. So it started out as a Bitcoin house and started to grow beyond that and started to formulate into blockchain. And a lot of it became because it's the concept of Ethereum. It wasn't even a product at the time. It was just a thought. <laughs> all right. So we're all sitting in the house, 2013, 2014, all kinds of, let's call them geeks, nerds. Yeah. Well, no, I would say... <laughs> Yeah, so socialites. Socialites, yeah. So I, when I got involved, one of the first big things I decided to do is we decided to plan a conference in mm -hmm. Toronto. We said, you know what, we need a Bitcoin Expo. Do you want to plan it? And Good. so I came back from university, and, and so I got interested because I started this microfinance program in Kenya, mm -hmm. and I went and I was got pretty obsessed with payments and was quite intrigued by Impesa there. And because of that, I started to get more involved in the crypto space and the social impact space. Mm -hmm. And so I would say this house had a combination of maybe five or six different types of people. So one, which were a few of us, were the social impact. That was more myself. Then there were the geeks, like you said, really hardcore developers. And so I also came from an incubator tech background. And these were, let's say, nerds that I haven't seen before. Okay. <laughs> like, like real, real you know, developers. New nerds. Yeah. <laughs> Just really, really hardcore in some way, in a lot of ways. Then there were the anarchists mm -hmm. and the libertarians that filled the place up as well, as well as more the fintech group. So back in the day, it was all focused on financial technology. Mm -hmm. It was all fintech. There was beyond that. And so when I ran my first volunteer meeting, I, I got this list from the Bitcoin Association of Canada. It was a list of, I would say, I don't know, it was like a thousand or fifteen hundred people. Email blasting to come be a volunteer, and about forty men showed up, all guys. And our conversations derailed most of the time about conspiracy theories. Yeah. Oh, of <laughs> course. Just, Obviously. 
Of course. <laughs> well, back in the day, that, that's a big group of the people that it attracted. Right. Hey. So you're sitting in this house, 2014, and yeah. Mount Gox hack happens. Can you tell us about that? What was the feeling? What was the environment? What, what happened? Because the Japanese exchange got hacked about, you know, what was it, three months ago already? And yep. nobody even kind of phased. The market kind of went, eh. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, you know, and then everybody was just like, okay, they'll fix it. And kind of everybody moved on another day. You know, 51% attacks happen all the time. But this one really had an impact and it's still having an impact. Why? What was the feeling? And let's start from there. Tell the story. Yeah, it was a huge impact for sure. It was all everyone talked about. Everyone stopped everything they did and definitely just like contemplated what they were working on and the future of uh, Bitcoin back in the day. I think the reason why people don't flinch as much anymore is because all of these things have happened. But back in the day, that was pretty much the first big one. And it really got brought back to like a philosophical thought of the point of Bitcoin is to be your own bank. You know, you're not supposed to actually share your keys or have somebody else hold your uh, cryptocurrency. And so it got a lot of debate going on. One side being very angry because they've lost a lot of their money and the other side being very much saying, well, isn't this the whole point of crypto that we don't rely on a third party? Why is anybody upset? And so there was actually a lot of frustration in the office because of course people were furious that they lost a lot of money. And the other side, people were furious that people allowed them to lose a lot of money, if that makes uh, Absolutely. sense. Yeah, and there were quite a few arguments back then because although you wanted to be upset, you're almost embarrassed because you were such a believer that you were your own bank. This would never happen. And so it was a crazy time for sure. Everything kind of halted for a bit. And what also started happening is Mt. Gox was the headline that got attraction on the media. Mm -hmm. But what the media really attracts itself to is it started talking about all the bad benefits of Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. So all the media coming out about the deep web and drugs and all these other really negative connotations to it. And so you have a lot of people in the room that were like myself that were here because of more maybe the social impact that it could have on society and, you know, all the benefits of it. But really the media always attracted itself to everything negative. Right. And it took, say, a good year after that to really get away from the Mount Gox. Because anytime we would talk about Bitcoin after that, all people knew in mainstream was, oh, didn't get hacked. You know, so it's hard to explain, be your own bank. And then in the same line try to explain to somebody how it got hacked. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. How much did Bitcoin get hacked for in the Mt. Gox? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't remember. 150 million? Ooh, that's, that's quite a lot back in the 2014 prices. Yeah, don't, don't quote me on that at all. I, I can't remember. Because, I, <laughs> because we remember. keep hearing every, every day that, oh, okay, they're finding you know this Bitcoin or that Bitcoin or they're re recovering this money or they're refunding this money. And it's like, where's these Bitcoins coming from? What's going on? Yeah. Oh, it's actually 460 million. Oh, okay. That's, that's, that's nothing. You know, it's, it's spare change, right? Yeah, spare change. Well, it's, it's interesting now, too, because, you know, seeing a lot of these people that were involved in this space back then, not so much Toronto, but people that I knew, you could tell that they probably would be really, really, really rich crypto billionaires or millionaires right now if they didn't get hacked. Right. A lot of the really early people in blockchain, a lot of them also got hacked. Did you have Bitcoin at the time? I did. I wasn't in Mt. Gox. I actually bought my first Bitcoin uh, with local Bitcoins at Starbucks. <laughs> we had uh, my phone and, and, and a lot of cash. And it was one of those things that you kind of exchange in the same second. <laughs> and right hope that none of us ran away. <laughs> All right. So Mt. Gox happened. You know, you guys are sitting yeah. in this house. You guys are contemplating life, what you guys are doing, yeah. how you've been spending the whole summer, drinking a coffee. 2015 rolls around. 
Yeah. Well, until 2014 rolls around and we run this expo. And so this conference ended up being 800 people, which is one of the largest in the world. And this is when Ethereum launched. So it was the first time Ethereum kind of came out onto the forefront. And so part of the conference, we ran a hackathon that we brought all the Ethereum team down from all around the world because a lot were in Europe, a lot were in different corners of the world to this one house. And so we spent two days there hacking. And when I look back on the people who were there at that hackathon, it was now the CEO of, you know, the founder of Cardano, the founder of Cosmos, the founder of Polymath, the founder of, I would say like 10 or 15 of the top crypto companies in the space right now. And so that was one of the most remarkable things, even when thinking about events now in the sense that you don't know who you're sitting beside. Right. You know, like back then, these guys, we were griming it out two days, not sleeping in a house that I remember going there and realizing they didn't have toilet paper. I'm like, what's going <laughs> on here? <laughs> and now they're traveling the world and they're doing some of the biggest projects. So that was 2014. And so 2014 happened. It catapulted me into this space where I got to know all these great speakers. And the topics back then, too, were very libertarian. There were a lot of debates that were going on. The what conflict. were some of those debates? Just government, you know, like how, how much government control. Right. Uh, relation Banks, the Fed. The banks, the Fed. Like you were embarrassed to say they were from a bank. And there definitely were people from banks, but it wasn't like today that you would never say you're from a consulting company or a bank. You know, you wore sweatpants and T-shirts. Mm -hmm. That was the general sense of the space at the time. And then um, pushing forward, 2015 started happening and I started working with a, quite a few really close mentors of mine. And I started focusing a lot on certified training. And so all these startups started happening and these startups needed actually professional services like legal or accounting and so all these professions started to evolve in the sense that be a blockchain or a crypto lawyer or I'm a crypto accountant or I'm crypto marketing. Mm -hmm. So you said 2014 and I'm, I keep going back to the timeline because I'm a very linear thinker. So yeah. we have 2014, you have Vitalik, Ethereum, you're sitting next to, you know, people from Cardano and, you know, all these different companies that are just huge right now, but probably, yeah. you know, multimillionaires as well and doing yeah. amazing cool projects. And now you have these professions evolve. What was the shift from, you know, just being some people in a house to this being, you know, a, a way to sell drugs and buy <laughs> shit on the Internet that nobody can sell in real life to people want to be lawyers and accountants for a cryptocurrency? What was that shift and how did that happen? Mm -hmm. It really did happen because of Ethereum. Ethereum brought the word blockchain to the forefront and started saying, well, it's not about the currency, it's about the technology. And just that change of language, more people started coming to the space because a lot of people kept coming and saying, no, 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 I'm not a Bitcoin fan. I don't even like Bitcoin. I like blockchain, right? And it, it created this huge shift that people started mm. creating all these different projects now on Ethereum. And so even the hackathons, we started running all these hackathons for the Ethereum team with BlockEaks um, and with the like the original core team. And the projects were quite amazing, a lot of them. They were, I would say, even sometimes more far-fetched than they were today, <laughs> right? <laughs> Thinking about like things like the DAO, for example, the concept of that and how that came about. Cool. Two things I want to touch on very quick. Yeah. For just the one-on-one crowd that might not be, you know, techies or geeks or people that can, you know, do anything on a computer besides do an Instagram photo and a filter. Of course, have to have yeah. the good filters. What is a hackathon? A hackathon is when we bring together developers. And so they come together usually for 24 to 36 hours and form teams to create different technologies or prototypes of a technology. And they showcase it to a panel of judges and they either win a prize or don't win a prize. And so it's kind of like you build something, you know, in a really short time frame. Oh, that's really cool. All right. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. It's great because it breeds cross collaboration. 
Right. And so people come together and you have someone who's a bit more experienced, somebody who's a bit brand new, maybe sometimes someone who's not even techie at all. Maybe they're more into design. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have some like a business person on their team and they go and they pitch it to a panel. So back in the day, we gave away, I think it was $25,000 worth of Bitcoin, which is now almost something like a million dollars. So I hope they kept that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I want to touch on this as well. What is the DAO? Give us a DAO 101. DAO 101 is, it's created an organization without getting too technical for Crypto 101, but uh, Ethereum essentially created its own self-sustaining organization in some ways. So with no central authority, which didn't work out so well. <laughs> no, it didn't. Because a lot of people still use the DAO concept. And what is the concept of this, you know, self-governance? How, how does that work? It's hard to explain without getting too technical. Oh, go but for it. The crypto 101 isn't too 101. <laughs> okay. Um, let me get back to that question for you. No worries. No worries. All right. Okay. So let's continue down our journey of our timeline. 2015, you're having hackathons. Some of the biggest names are there. You give out, which is now a million plus dollars of Bitcoin <laughs> as a prize, which is very generous of you, by the way. <laughs> I wasn't that at the time. What's the next step? Where is blockchain going from here? So blockchain coming from here now is, so our meetups became too big. We couldn't fit everybody in a house now. Now we actually had to go rent a place out. Okay. So we went from having, let's say, 40 different people to now having more like 150 people. We started to be focused more on the fintech community. So anybody focusing on different mobile apps or any type of technology focused on financial technology, that audience started to come in. And because that audience started to come in in a lot of the incubation space, so we have a place called Mars in, our, in the city of Toronto or something called the Digital Media Zone. Because that audience started to come in, we started to have more business-minded people in the space, which started these startups, I would mm. say. So all these startups started popping up with two to three people in them. And that's where we started getting all these professional services in some sense. And what, what were these startups doing? So you remember, we, we started out with, you know, dudes in a house that, you know, Bitcoin was for buying drugs and, you know, killing people. Yeah. <laughs> to Vitalik and <laughs> Ethereum, where it's shifting the language from Bitcoin to blockchain technology, to people going out to get jobs and find professions and looking for different angles for the future of, well, their professional career. And now we are, have startups. What are the startups doing and what inspires them? And, well, how did you see some of those evolve to today? Yeah. So the startups back then were the basic crypto and blockchain startups that you can think of in the sense of they were all focused on wallets, exchanges, any type of merchant services were quite popular. So how do we get merchants to accept Bitcoin? It's not as much of a push at all anymore compared to how I feel like it dominated the space back then. And consulting, a lot of consulting companies coming up to help, whether it's like education, creating workshops for people, training. But the big ones for sure were a lot of people were focused on wallets and exchanges. Because a lot of those had direct revenue attached to it. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was, it was just a business plan to see how they can facilitate Bitcoin trading yeah. or exchange and take a little bit of money. Exactly. And the other piece of it was the consulting piece was really popular. And what was the consulting piece doing? There was, like, for example, like crypto consultants. or So there, a lot of them had to do with security. Mm-hmm. Security was a really, really big piece because anybody who their Bitcoin price that maybe was $30 or 150 has now become $400 or $1,500. And so now people were much more nervous about Gox and keeping things online. Right. And so a lot of the consultings were based around security focus. So how to cold storage, you know, we were just educating people on just the very basic fundamentals that seem so simple right now. Uh, But back then they were just so brand new terms. The other piece that was really popular was mining. 
Mm-hmm. A lot of mining companies and, and a lot of people buying their own hardware to mine at home, which you just don't do anymore for Bitcoin. Right. Well, let's go back to those merchants. Before yeah. it was a big push. And I think that even, ah, man, I think even, you know, up until late 2016, 2017, it was about, you know, using Bitcoin in the store to buy bread and cereal and Coca-Cola and things like that. But you said there was a shift. What caused that shift from everybody just, you know, going merchant route to now we're looking at, I don't know, in business integration? I know. I I can't personally pinpoint what the shift was. I think it had to do with probably just being really hard to get merchants to accept it and the Mm -hmm. learning curve just being too hard for them. And with a mix of, you know, bad press and media, the Bitcoin Association of Canada at the time would go around two stores and say, here's an iPad. This is exactly how you'd accept it. And we'd always only get a luck of, you know, two or three. The other thing was just the price volatility of it. Mm-hmm. People can run a business knowing that price will fluctuate that much. And so I found even till today, it's not as widely accepted. It's more now online. I think people realize brick and mortar isn't the smartest place. <laughs> online is probably a lot better. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just not as apparent as it used to be. You also said mining switched from, okay, I guess back in the day, you can, you know, CPU mine your Bitcoin, then it was GPU mine your Bitcoin, and then they started throwing away these hugely expensive GPU miners and getting ASIC miners. When did you see this shift? When you were in 2013, I would assume they were still using CPUs or were they using GPUs by then? I don't don't know what the exact term would be. Cool. Like at our conference, at our expo, I think four different vendors were selling hardware there. So you could actually go and buy hardware for your computers. I was I personally never got into the mining game. <laughs> All right, no, bro- no worries, no worries. <laughs> All right, so we're now we're, we're at we're finishing off 2015. Yeah, went into 2016. What's happening now? So now I would say what's happening is these may have started getting even larger. So it started being like 400 people coming to them. And now we started seeing a lot more. I felt the developer community started to really rally around it a lot more. And so we had a lot of people in mainstream developers shifting to blockchain because I found what was happening is that people weren't just looking for Solidity developers or blockchain developers. They were looking for full stack. They were looking for UI UX developers. Mm -hmm. And so the developer community started growing really quickly. And so even our Ethereum hackathon started to gain a lot more attraction where we essentially started having to not have enough room for them. What about the talent pool? Were you bringing in better talent, different talent, or did it kind of drop off for a little bit? I think it's slowly dropping off. The problem right now, specifically with developers, is the really, really great ones all made a ton of money in crypto. (laughs) So it's hard to really convince them to ever really work on something unless they're working on their own or unless it goes down to their core vials of who they are. And so which typically isn't about making more money or making somebody else more money. But the developer community started to grow rapidly. And so it's really hard because you have these really experienced developers, you know, the non-crypto world that now need a training to learning blockchain. And that's where, for example, BlockEaks, which is in Toronto, and they've done a really great job like creating courses to teach developers how to use blockchain and develop on the blockchain. And so I think more than anything, that was the community that started to gain a lot of traction. And keep in mind, as these years go on, the price goes up, the price goes down, the price goes up, the price goes down. So it's like anytime the price really shot down, the media all came, it was all negative, and then everyone kind of went and hit under a rock again. <laughs> and they came back out. And so there was even a few months between, I think it was between 2015 and 2016, that even myself, I said, you know, I got to stop branding myself as Bitcoin because people started thinking, what is this girl working on? What is she doing? Right. Because uh, it was just getting so much bad PR. 
And right. so the developers who understood the technology of it, that's why I think that group grew so quickly mm-hmm. is because they're the ones that understood the technology behind it and didn't get so distracted by all the bad PR. Where I would say even at this point, the banks and the consulting companies still were not on board yet. Now we are moving to 2016, about when I got into Bitcoin. And I got into the Bitcoin at the end of 2016 before it went up to $1,000. I think it was at like 600 still, but it's making this climb. So there's a big lull there where Bitcoin's price was just there. It was just, <laughs> don't even talk about it. It was sticking between a range and it stayed there for about two years, two and a half years, you know, minor fluctuations. And then by the end of 2016, boom. We see the rally 2017, we're at where we are now. What was the shift in the environment, in the media, in everything we said up until now, what happened 2016, 2017? More mainstream outlets started to get attracted to it and then it just snowballed very, very quickly. And so I know in Toronto and Canada, sorry, and that's why some of our pricing is different because I, I think Canadian dollars, which is very weak compared to the American dollar. Is but it? um yeah, unfortunately. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I live, I live in crypto. I don't even look at that anymore. <laughs> but uh, I think really came down to a lot of really big projects being launched, a lot of great media coming out about it, the banks all getting involved, the consulting companies. In Toronto, they have VP of blockchain now at banks. They've just became all of a sudden sexy again. And so I can't know exactly why the price catapulted like that high. I'm not sure if you have in some insight. <laughs> I, really, <laughs> I, 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 I do not. I do not. And now a word from our sponsor, Anko. Hey, everyone. I want to let you know about Anko. Anko is the world's first blockchain-based health tech financial solution platform. Health tech is new in solutions in overcoming evolutionary challenges, diseases, disabilities, and longevity of life. Blockchain health tech will drive development in diagnostics, treatment, and research. Inco has been created to deliver health tech innovations to the forefront of society. Inco's platform will deliver high-impact projects. They will be supported by an ecosystem infrastructure via their blockchain platform. All of this is possible through the utility of digital financing, health tech, and evolving ledger-based technologies. Inco's platform would deliver Inco's own blockchain that will unite health tech projects with three further pillars of applications, Inco IB, Prime, and Smart Cap Solutions. To drive the next stage of human evolution, Inco is dedicated to building an innovative ecosystem. Hey guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock a 2K camera, and a doorbell all in one. That's right, three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It gives you keyless entry, so no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months. But don't worry, when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also, it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recorded 
recordings. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy Video Lock is 24-7, so you don't have to worry about any issues you have, and it comes with an 18-month warranty. What I love about this product is it's truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Which they created an environment based on trust, integrity, and openness. If you're interested in their token presale, which starts on July 27th, go to ingcoin.com. That's A. E-N-C-O-I-N dot com and contribute in the first 24 hours of the token presale to enjoy up to 55% bonus A-E-N tokens. Again, that's A-E-N-C-O-I-N dot com to register. Now, back to our show. But I guess the real question here is that with the price fluctuation, and us going, you know, we're at a thousand before, didn't hit a thousand, at four hundred for quite some time or around that range, you know, not hitting a thousand. Then you saw that one thousand Bitcoin again and everybody's just like, We're back. There must have been some kind of, you know, fever in the community where developers started coming out of the woodworks, where you saw the conferences getting bigger, where you saw that there's more people contacting you or you're yeah. contacting more people and the community starts to get tighter, bigger, rallying together and moving us to where we are now, which I think is a very innovative, forward-thinking, positive-thinking community, all communities. I mean, besides all the, you know, the BS that happens, the, you know, the attacks, the hacks, the scams, the this, that, or the other things, it's a positive space. It's not about drugs. It's not about, you know, Silk Roads and hiring assassins. It's about a different future, but there is a change there. And was the price the catalyst? And when you saw that price go up, what happened into your community? What happened to the people that you were around? Well, when the price went up, anybody who had been in this space for a long time started bragging about it. I told you so. This is it. You're missing the boat. Anytime, right? The number one common thing that you'd always hear is, oh, my friend told me to invest in it two years ago. I should have listened to them. Wait, wait, wait. No question. Were you one of the people bragging? No, <laughs> I try and keep. Uh, hell yeah, you were. Come on now, no, don't be humble. Like hell yeah, you you went to your mom. Like I told you, mom. Yeah, exactly. My parents. As you, as you pull up with the Lambo. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, it uh, it just created this overwhelming hype, and so overnight, everybody wanted to come to an event. Everybody wanted to learn about it. Nobody wanted to be left behind. And I think a lot of the space is based on you know a FOMO, a fear of missing out, mm-hmm. and so it just snowballed. Yeah. It was quite a fun time. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so what happened to your conferences during this time? Did you see more engagement, more big name people wanting to take part? What happened? Yeah. So the conferences shifted. So a lot of them by 2016 was really focused on developers. 
I started to fall in love with the developer community because the price started going really high as well. I mean, 2017, I don't want to say I started getting a bit annoyed, but you do start getting a bit frustrated by people coming to the space, only wanting to know how to make a buck, mm-hmm. only wanting to know, you know, what's the fastest way that they can double their money or, you know, hundred X and things like that. So I started shifting a little bit more to the developer community as well as even to more of the, you know, the crypto 101 community, getting people to understand the basics of it, mm-hmm. getting people to understand how, why this technology has done so well for itself and the people behind it and the values behind it, which a lot of them did not come from making 100x. Mm-hmm. And so I focused a lot on the training conferences, thought they were very important with Michael Perklin uh, for C4. And so he does ones which does certified training so professionals can actually get certified so we don't have all everyone running out saying that they're an expert. Like we should be standardizing our tests. We should be making sure that if they are an expert, they know at least the fundamentals <laughs> of mm-hmm. it. And then the developer community was a big focus. And then I also started to get more involved in crypto chicks and more the community organizations. That, what is, that what is crypto chicks? So Crypto Chis is an organization focused on bringing inclusion into the space, and it's a wonderful group of females. They're very successful. They've actually launched chapters around the world, and really it's breaking down the barriers so anyone can enter the space. So it's not just focused on females. It's focused on more inclusion, Mm -hmm. and they do workshops. We did the first all-female blockchain hackathon, so tapping into those different networks. Why do you think that's important? It's important because you need to have multiple different perspectives. And the more people that are in the space that have different perspectives, the better ideas that come out of it, the better projects, the better innovation that's there. And the crypto chicks, like the hackathon that we ran, the projects and ideas were mind-blowing. I've never heard anything like it. We brought people with different diverse backgrounds, ideas together. It's important for the community without a doubt. And I think specifically for diversity, blockchain's so new, so we have the opportunity to shape how the space looks and the inclusion of it. It's much easier than working in an industry that's been around for hundreds of years. So we went through four years of blockchain. We went through the price differences, Moncox, you know, people hanging out in the house to people starting professions and startups and people getting rich, cashing out and not doing anything they don't want to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, but now, so that brings us to say, let's yeah, say 2018. That brings us to right now. And now yeah. we have a more positive, diverse community. What do you think the future is of blockchain and what do you want to see in the future? If you were going to talk about your future, which is, you know, all made up right now, everything you say right now is going straight from your head, straight from your wish list. What would that be for the blockchain in the future? So the blockchain for the future, I think, is how do we all come to an agreement in some fronts? We don't have to agree on everything, but how do we foresee the future of the space? And so I speak to so many people, know so many people that believe in blockchain and see it as a future and a positive impact on society, but then they have such conflicting views on different topics. For example? And for example, government control. You know, how much should government regulation? Mm-hmm. You know, should they be regulating it? Should they not be regulating it? And so that's why with the conference that I'm running coming up, which is called Blockchain Futures Conference, which is focused on the future of blockchain, I'm trying to bring all these different audiences and groups of people together to let's discuss and debate the future of it. So we are going to have a panel where we have a libertarian, an anarchist, you know, a journalist that's a bit more pro-government and a regulator to do. And let's talk about, you know, governance, for example, because it's incredible that they all love the same thing, but they all have such different views on how it should all be done. And so we also have things like a blockchain bootcamp, which is going to help people get into the space because right now I find it's very hard for people to enter events because anybody new to it, everything goes right over their head. 
You know, they walk into an event, you typically don't understand anything being said and they walk right out and never enter again. So how do we make sure we tailor the education to who's there into mm-hmm. different stages? We're going to have like a social impact stage so that, you know, it's focused on making sure we bring to light all the different social impact projects. And then how do we create cross collaboration? So we're making sure that all of our investors and our portfolio managers and anybody who might come from, you know, the security token space is still getting exposure to see what's happening in the social impact space. And so I really think it takes a community to build the future. And so that's my dream is to get everybody to come together and to actually, you know, discuss and debate and to showcase what's upcoming so that we can see all these different perspectives. Because I think I've been very fortunate in my role in the community that I've gotten to see all these different perspectives and see kind of where we've come from. I don't think as many people have that same viewpoint. I think they're very targeted events they go to, very targeted blogs they go to, very targeted audiences they speak with. And so they have to see the full holistic approach. So with all these views that you've heard over the years, what's your view? (laughs) Oh, good question. (laughs) My view overall is that I think blockchain technology can bring a lot of good to the world Mm -hmm. and can bring control back to the people in a lot of ways. And so bringing back to how I first got involved going to Africa or going to Kenya and creating those microfinance programs and seeing remittance and seeing how long people had to wait at Western Union to get money. You know, I work with a good friend, Jason King. He does things for homeless Mm -hmm. and how hard it is for someone who's homeless to actually get a bank account, but they can get a wallet. You know, that's not a problem. And so it levels the playing field out. Because I think there's just quite a few too many middlemen all taking a little bit of something that it just really isn't rightfully theirs. Question. We hear this word a lot, you know, and I'm guilty to use this phrase, back to the people. Let's bring the power back to the people. And yeah. then the, the exact next example usually is these little fees that are being taken out or waiting too long for a transfer. I personally see a connection between the two. The power to the people and a technology that makes things faster. What is yeah. the power to the people? Power to the people is, for example, is why can't someone who's homeless get an account to have money stored in it? Who's the gatekeeper, mm-hmm. right? There's all these different gatekeepers for everything that we want. If you want to go and invest in, it's, it's not the best example, but a security token, you of course need to be verified and it needs to follow regulation. But why is there so many barriers to entry to people? And sometimes it feels like you have to be part of an exclusive group and know an exclusive, you know, have a certain amount of money or a certain amount of knowledge or be connected a certain way to, to have access to something that maybe everybody should have access to. Mm-hmm. And what is that that somebody should have access to? A bank account to start off with. I think, you know, if someone is here and they want to send money to the Philippines, do they have to wait four days and do they have to pay a crazy, you know, transaction fee for it? Mm-hmm. Is someone really providing that big of a service and, and can we do it in a much better way? So that's a big piece of it. But I think the most exciting part for me, truthfully, is I don't know what the future is going to hold. Like, I love seeing just where it's going to take us. And I wish you could predict the future, but you can't. You can just enable people with, you know, the skills or the knowledge and the support and the, and the community to help them grow. So it's not a human right. I think that we've talked about technology and human rights in mainstream society for a couple of years now when it comes to the Internet, when it comes to Internet access and things like that. It's not a human right to have money. If you're poor, you're poor. If you're broke, you're broke. If you're rich, you're rich. That's that, It's not a human right. But you're saying that it should be a human right to be able to transact with money if you have it. Yeah, and a very simple answer. I guess what I'm trying to ask with this, and I'm sorry I went all deep in, (laughs) but you brought up a good point. I mean, I think that we don't define, and since we're talking about the future, I'm wondering where these definitions are going to come from. And when we say that people should have a bank account 
okay, should be able to control their money, okay, but they don't have a house, they don't have any way to register who they are. Is that important? Is that a right of somebody that is that an inalienable right of being born and being human to be able to control digital currency and send that currency wherever they want? And so I guess is that a right? Is that like food, water, <laughs> life to liberty, happiness, and freedom? That's a deep question. That's a deep question. I think a lot of some of our core issues in the world come down to being in cycles and how do you get people out of this cycle, right? And so giving people at least just access or the ability to do something like have an account, I think is important. Is it a human right? It's a, that's a big, deep question. <laughs> I'll leave it. Yeah. I wish you didn't leave that because we could tackle it, but we can move forward as well. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to say anything that I'm going to wonder. No, no, no. I, I, but see, I, I think that's, we'll, we'll leave it. But in my personal opinion, I think the easiest answer to that is I don't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know how much, because then you have this pushback from maybe uh, capitalists or communists or socialists or these different ideas that said, well, by having this human right, everybody has the right to, you know, liberty. And part of liberty is, you know, the control of themselves. And part of controlling themselves is the, the way that they purchase or gain these basic human needs, food, water, happiness, liberty, or what have you. And money is a way to facilitate that liberty. So and from that point of view, I would assume that yeah, it, it is a human right. But then how much rights do you have for protection from the other side? If you say one of the things with the bank account is like, we got to figure out who these people are. Can they just stockpile millions and billions of dollars of Bitcoin and not have a bank account or, or not have a home address, not have a social security number? That's why I wasn't able to answer that question. <laughs> it's like part of me says yes. And then part of me says no. And so it's going to be interesting to see where the space takes us. Hmm. Yeah. I, th I think that blockchain technology, and I think that you hit it on the head, it is going to be, you know, a technology to make this easier in the future. So that even if we do have these checks and balances or these safety precautions or what have you, or ways to validate identity, it's not going to take four days to get to the Philippines when you're sending funds. Yeah. And I think like when it comes down to topics of identity and knowing who these people are, like that's a different problem to solve. We can solve that. We've got a lot of very smart people solving the problem of identity. It's more the gatekeepers. It's who selects these gatekeepers and what's the criteria of these gatekeepers, right? I right. think that's the harder question to answer. Talking about these people, in your conference, you've had Vitalik, you've had Andreas, yep. you've had Charlie, you've had Amber, you've had a lot of people. Who are you having this year? Oh, so we're bringing quite a few of them back. So Charles Hoskinson, he'll be coming back, co-founder of Ethereum, founder of Cardano. So he'll be coming back. We have Trevor Caverco, CEO of Polymath. We have Al Bergio for Digital Bits, which is a really up-and-coming project coming up right now. Amber Scott will be back. David Johnson from Factum. He's awesome. And we're probably going to be announcing, you know, over 50 more in the next few weeks. Right on. Excellent. Excellent. And what is your goal? Like, you know, I see a lot of these conferences and, you know, besides consensus, consensus, a lot of people go there to release their products to show, you know, their MVP or what have you. What is the goal for this conference when you're getting all of these very famous, great minds together? So the goal of the conference is to talk about the future if we can to debate and discuss different topics. And so we have quite a few people launching new projects. We have a few huge special announcements coming out. We have some companies that are setting up shop in Toronto that will be launching as well. We're going to be having quite a few airdrops going on. And so getting people actually on site to download a mobile app, get an airdrop and actually use vendors on site to actually transact and maybe buy t-shirts or buy different you know, promotional items on site. And so we are going to be bringing these big thought leaders in to talk about the history of where we've come from and the future of different topics. For example, Nick Spano, he was in the Banking on Bitcoin on Netflix. He ran the New York 
Bitcoin Center. And so he's going to talk about the future of oracles and where he sees that going. We're going to have Trevor Cabrillo talk more about the future of securities and where he sees that going. We're going to be bringing one of our projects from Polymath and hopefully they're going to launch as well. And so we want to also bring it to a point that it's an audience that anybody can kind of listen to and still understand. So we're not going to go very deep in the weeds like I would in my hackathons or like my training conferences. It's going to be more high level. We're going to have a great topic on how do we get to mainstream adoption. And then, like I said, we're going to have different stages and rooms tailored. So we will have a social impact stage. We'll have a demo off stage focused on new ICOs coming out. And we'll have that blockchain basic room with an ask an expert booth. So anybody can go there. You have a question. You want to know how to set up a wallet, how to go on exchange, you know, just the fundamentals of blockchain. Come into this room, come hang out and answer some questions. And I hope you're going to be there too as well. I am very much looking forward to it in one capacity or another. Yes, we're going to be having you speak. I think we might be. We might be. What do you want people to walk away from when they leave this conference? You're an average person. You walk in in there. You're maybe taking a day off of work. You know, you're maybe eh, missing a couple hundred bucks in tips from the bar. But you're going to walk in in there. You're going to listen to these people speak. And when they leave, what do you want them to take away? I want them to take away that they've learned something new and that their eyes have opened to all the different industries that it's impacting and to have them start generating different ideas of how they see where the space is going and how they can get involved in the space. And so I think that's overall a message I always like to share with people is when I started the space, I was, I was quite young. I had bright pink hair. I was a female and I found a way to get involved in the space. <laughs> you you were a female? <laughs> that, that changed? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> I am a female. Thank you, Mom. Yeah, I was young, pink hair, female, did not fit the typical group of people that were in that crypto house back in the day, but found a way to make an impact and found a way to bring my skills to the table and help contribute to the community. And I think every person who wants to get involved in blockchain to realize you don't have to be a crazy developer. You know, you don't have to be from a bank or from a financial institution. There's roles for everyone in the community and everyone likes working with all these different diverse perspectives. And so uh, to come there and to meet new businesses and you're going to have a lot of people who are recruiting there. We also have three awesome, awesome parties. So at a minimum, at least they'll leave leave with a good time. (laughs) Right on. Excellent. You mind if we go into some general questions about the space? Yeah, sure. What do you think of the Bitcoin price? I don't look at it anymore. (laughs) Really? You know how many people say that? Like almost everyone says, I don't look at the price anymore. Which is good. You know what? I used to, and I used to go crazy. (laughs) Especially back in the day, I used to fluctuate even more. So it's resilient. It's the most resilient thing I've seen. I've seen people talk really bad about it. Hacks, you know, it's just crumbled and it's bounced back. So I feel confident with Bitcoin. But I don't look at the price. (laughs) Who do you look up to in general in the space? Like, for example, I assume you have a Twitter account. And this person tweets. This person maybe sends an Instagram. This person writes a Medium blog. This person maybe is on a podcast or a TV show. Who would this one person be that you would always make it a point or go out of your way to see what they're saying? Who's this person that you look up to in the space? Good question. I get from a lot of different sources, so I try not to follow one specific person. But I would say Andreas Antonopoulos, I really look up to. He's someone who's been in my events for quite a few years. I've known him for quite some time, and he's been able to really explain and educate people in a really great way. And so I love following his journey wherever he is in the world. Right on. Right on. <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool. And would he also be the person's advice you would take if you were looking for advice to how to navigate the blockchain space, you know, with your conferences, with investing, with anything that you were just, maybe this, uh, the conference and investing is too different, but if yeah. you were just going to ask somebody, you know, for general advice, how to navigate in the space, yeah, who would it be? I think some of my big mentors that have been around for a while is definitely Amber Scott. 
Mm-hmm. Back in the day, she was one of the only females with me in the space, and she really helped me navigate it. We also have the same hair color, so it helped out a lot. <laughs> Currently the same hair color, too? Still do, yeah. Oh, yeah. right on. So Amber Scott has really helped me navigate. Michael Perklin is another one who um, has a really good head on the shoulders and has helped me really navigate the space. Right on. What yeah. project do you think will have the most impact in the future? I think security tokens are the next mega trend. I think mm-hmm. Polymath made something great. I think there's a lot of other companies doing great things. I think it's inevitable it's going to happen. So I think the obvious one in the near future will be for sure security tokens. I think there's a lot of really great things happening in video games hmm. and digital assets overall. And so Wax is doing some really cool stuff there, working on um, projects in video games. I think also, as much as I like to say we're going mainstream, it's still, you got to have be a bit technical in the space right now. And so I think gaming audiences, a lot of those gamers can really grasp onto the space much easier than I would just say the average Joe. And then I think anything to do with and it sounds a bit old school, but I think it's going to be a big player in the space now is loyalty rewards. So anything related to loyalty programs, anything coming into the enterprises, because what the enterprises are going to be doing is the enterprises are going to be able to incorporate blockchain everywhere without people even knowing it's blockchain. They're just going to be like, oh, new feature added. You know, oh, this is something that's great. It's not even going to have a notice that it's blockchain related. And so those are my kind of impacts right now. And, and in terms of social impact, like I think Right Mesh is doing some really cool things with connectivity mm-hmm. but uh, there's just so many i think it's all gonna be amazing and uh, it's unfortunate to think that you know some of these guys aren't gonna just you know general startup statistics a lot of right. them might not succeed right. but there definitely will be quite a few that prevail and so it's exciting to see who's gonna be the ones you know crypto 101 is positioned itself to be probably the first stop for a lot of people when Bitcoin was almost at $20,000, everybody was saying cryptocurrency 101 and crypto 101 popped up as one of the first places. So it's very, very possible that this could be the first interview, the first person, you could be the first person that somebody listens to in their crypto journey. If you were that first person, what would you tell them? Oh my goodness. One, get excited and hold on for the ride. It's going to be a ride. (laughs) I would say go and make your own decisions. Right. And so make sure you educate yourself very versed in a lot of different places. So read a few different articles, watch a few different videos. Don't just stick to one specific individual or telegram group. I would say diversify yourself in multiple different industries and figure out what your passion is and how you can contribute to the space. That's always been my big thing that I've preached in the sense of there's a space for everyone. There's so many different roles that people can play in the space. And so if you're interested in blockchain and want to get involved, just go to meetups, go to events. They're the best place to meet people. They're the best place to go and make connections and find you know opportunities and have a great time because the community really is incredible. There's some really amazing people here. Since we're talking about the history of blockchain and the evolution of blockchain, I want to know about your evolution of ideology, of thought. Even Ooh. myself, you know, it's actually kind of hard to have a podcast <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, when you start, I can literally go back to my first episode and listen to myself and my thought and now I can listen to my new episodes and my thought and I see that there's an evolution along the way it's almost like black and white now because I have that two positions that I have a frame for in time what do you think about your evolution of ideology through time has it changed and also what do you think about people being receptive of changes in their own ideas and personality and ideology in this space Yeah, I'd say I don't have the luxury of recording every conversation I've had. 
<laughs> but I would have to say I'm sure my ideology has changed a bit in the sense of the audiences I've been around and the people I've worked with. And so that's why I think it's so important to go and make sure you're talking to so many different types of people. Because if you sit around in your same social circle, sometimes you don't get all the viewpoints. But for ideology, that's a hard question. <laughs> No, no, it is. I mean, and I sadly have the luxury of doing this, you know, multiple times a week and always hearing myself speak. And I think that one of the most valuable things for somebody to do getting into the space, or even if they've been in the space for years, is to allow themselves to be wrong and be wrong often and always evolve their ideas based off of being wrong. Because the space is evolving really fast. The technology is evolving really fast. So even if you had an opinion six months ago, you don't have to stick with it because maybe everything has changed around it. I agree. I think that's a really good way to phrase it for sure. Cool. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) Before I ask this last question, I want to say thank you, Tracy, for coming on the show, giving us a history lesson on blockchain. Tell us about your conference and, you know, just meeting you and getting to know a really cool, influential person in the space. And I hope you continue doing this in Toronto. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been really a pleasure speaking with you and sharing my stories. And I really hope, uh, I can't wait to see you at Futures Conference in August. I'm making plans as we speak. Wonderful. (laughs) What three songs would you like to put on the Crypto 101 Spotify playlist? Ooh, uh, which songs? I think, do I have to give you three of them? You can give us as many as you want. Give us as many as you want. Let's say, She Works Hard For Your Money. Okay. Pretty good. <laughs> uh, what other crypto song? I don't have to right now. What are some other ones? Examples people give. Beatles and Radiohead, I think I heard the most popular right now. Just actually for people to listen to. Well, no, it's usually they're not like related to, you know what? Everybody has different philosophies. You know, if you ask um, <laughs> Kyber Network, he gave us the Imperial March from Star Wars. If you ask, you know, Doug Pike or uh, I was talked to um, streamer uh, Datacoin the other day. And they gave us Radiohead and Beatles. You know, um, I think the song was Revolution, the Beatles. Oh, I love it. You know, so they, they, everybody has different points of view oh. of coming to this question. And it tells a lot about how they think about the space, look at the space, this perspectives and about their personality. So I wish I put more thought into this one. <laughs> no worries. Sometimes people have a slew, a list, and sometimes just one or two. But we'll stick with that one. Yeah, we'll stick with that one. I hope it's not going on the actual list that people have to listen to that song. No, no, the, yeah, it is. It's going on the actual list. <laughs> okay. Let me get back to you on another song so they don't cringe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's going to be hard to you know put it back in there because if this is on recording, this is going to be in the podcast. So I'm going to have one in the podcast. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tracy, thank you very much for coming on Crypto 101 and you have a great day and we'll talk to you soon. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to seeing you. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. If you want to know more about what I think about this episode, about talking to Tracy, please check us out on our YouTube channel. That's Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron. Our next episode is a great 101 where we talk about security token offerings. These are ICOs, token offerings that are in compliance with the SEC. They're security tokens opposed to utility tokens. So this is going to give us a great 101 foundation that's going to move us into the future of token offerings. People say that this is the new ICO. We'll see you in that episode. But before we go, ApogeeCrypto.com, that's A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com, the best place to check your real-time prices. CryptoNews.com, the best place for your news. And WPOnTheFly.co if you need a website. 
We'll see you in the next episode of Crypto 101. Thank you very much for listening. This is Matthew Aaron. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.